A quick warning, there are curse words that are unbeeped in today's episode of the show. If you prefer a beeped version, you can find that at our website, thisamericanlife.org. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt, sitting in for Ira Glass. I've been talking to people lately about their jobs. Something is going on with jobs right now. People are leaving them. They want to leave them. Where we do our jobs is changing. What we do. And I've been especially interested in people who are designated essential workers. I think for the stay-at-home types, people like me, our jobs changed in very obvious ways. But for people who continued to go to work in person, their jobs changed too. But those changes were sometimes less visible. For example, Carrie Breen. He's a carpenter, works for the New York City Department of Education, fixing things in schools. Spring last year, when all the schools shut down for COVID, Carrie wasn't sure what that meant for him. Until he heard, no, 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 he should still come in, report to work. Well, the fact that they deemed us essential, I kind of found it a little comical in the beginning. That door has creaked for years. That floor has creaked for years. All of a sudden today, it's an emergency or it's essential. It's not like he was a doctor or a grocery store worker. Most of our work is repairing floors, doors, uh, ceilings that are down, bathrooms falling apart. Do you have a favorite sort of task? Like on Monday morning, if you get assigned doors, are you like, ah, more doors? Or is there one that you really like? I wouldn't say there's a favorite. My favorite is when the building has an elevator because you'll get doors on the fifth floor of a building and you've got to carry doors that weigh potentially a couple hundred pounds up and then back down. Carrie is practical in this way. Carrie's been a carpenter for 35 years. He's also a volunteer firefighter. Irish, talks about his kids a lot. So he's going to work, and they're getting a lot done because there's no kids around. With the COVID, school's empty. Things were getting painted. Things were getting fixed. I've never seen the schools look so good. And then, April, a couple weeks after the schools closed, Carrie goes in for his team meeting where they tell everyone what they're working on next. Uh, it was, I believe, like a Thursday or Friday afternoon. My boss said, uh, we've got a project coming up next week, and we're going to start to build coffins. He repeated it. We'll be building coffins for the city of New York. Nobody in the shop believed it. We're like, you know, get out of here, build coffins. And he produced a set of plans and showed them to us. And he said, we're going to start next week. Monday morning, Carrie goes to work. And we had to go to a high school, uh, into a gymnasium that was set up as a rudimentary shop uh, with... A high school gymnasium, like, with, like, basketball lines on the floor kind of yes, thing? Yes, We all get up there, and it's, uh, there was actually a prototype of what we had to build. Standing. It's an example coffin. Yes, I actually have a picture. Wow. Whoa. They showed you that prototype? Yes. It's a simple box standing on its end where a person's feet would be. And it's open. The cover isn't attached yet. It's just leaning against the box. In the background, you can see a scoreboard, a basketball net, and a championship banner. It was a basic plywood and two-by-four box. I've built some strange things over the years, but I've never built a coffin in my life. Very quickly, the gym became a workshop. They set up cut stations and assembly stations, 
Electricians came in to install ventilation fans for all the sawdust. And about 10 carpenters got to work. And we started bringing in drafts of plywood, which is 50 sheets at a time. And we had six drafts of plywood and two drafts of two by fours. And they didn't give us an end, or, but we were just told, this is your job for now. So we started and we ran through all the material, got more material, ran through that, got more material. Like, oh my God, they really need this many made. I asked Carrie, did they know where the coffins were going? No. Did the carpenters talk about what the boxes were for? No. We just kept working. We would get up to about 150 until we had a very large stack of them. It was almost a wall across the gym from one end to the other. Where do you put 150 coffins in a high school gym? Straight across the basketball court from one end to the other. So, Like stacked on top of each yes, other? Yes. We'd stack them about five or six high until we got pallets, and then we'd place 10 on a pallet, shrink wrap them, and I would take a forklift and back them into the elevator. I'd drive them out onto the street and up the street, through the schoolyard, down the next street, and to the back of a tractor trailer. And getting honked at for a forklift that goes too slow. So They're honking at you while you were driving the coffins? Yes. And in three weeks of doing it, not one person in the neighborhood ever asked a question, what are those or what are you doing? Do you, were you waiting for somebody to ask you? I found it bizarre that nobody asked. It, maybe nobody made the connection or maybe nobody wanted to make the connection. It just seemed like people were going about their lives and until the final load where uh, one guy who spoke Spanish only walks past me and he just says, Morta, and makes sort of a slicing motion across his neck. And I just said, see, and he shook his head and just walked away. In the end, Carrie's team built 415 coffins. There are carpenters in other schools too. Altogether, they built 1,400. As I've been talking to people about their jobs, people in lots of different jobs that were deemed essential over these last 17 months, I will very regularly find myself saying something like this. I had no idea that happened. Well, what did? Yeah, do people know that that happened? It was not for public knowledge. Um, I think nobody knew how to handle it. I'm sure the schools didn't want, like, hey, we're building coffins over here. You know, it's not something you want to highlight. But now that things are waning, and all right, you can kind of let that out. You know. Yeah, there's a sort of part of what's weird about what just happened is that, like, there were people who had to do things that, that just normally are never asked of in your job. And it wasn't a war, <clears throat> but like, if it was a war, in a, after a war, oh, yeah, you go over statistics. what happened, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. This is how many people died. This is how, you know, how many planes we built or trucks we, whatever. Or the fact that somebody built coffins in a high school gym in the Bronx. Yeah, there's gonna be an accounting. that It'll be the weird stats that come out of somewhere. And this is one of the stranger ones. 
415 coffins. Mark it down. That happened. A year and a half ago, we asked more than 50 million Americans to continue going to work because they had essential jobs. And they did. Nurses and doctors. And also mail carriers and waitresses and construction workers, childcare workers, garbage collectors, all worked through this once-in-a-century emergency. And now, we're kind of used to it. We're focused on what's next. But do we even know what just happened? I remember calling to check in on someone early in the pandemic. She works in customs at the airport. And she told me they hadn't gotten any PPE yet. And they were nervous. They all sit right next to each other in desks in this office. So they took cardboard boxes and put them up between their desks. And then they cut holes in the boxes so they could talk to each other. I had the same feeling hearing that as I did with the coffins. Do people know that happened? Shouldn't we be marking that in some way? 415 coffins, that happened. And 22 jerry-rigged cardboard partitions in JFK Airport. That happened too. Today's show, I'd like to attempt to do a kind of accounting, not of how many people died or how many are unemployed, but a different kind of national accounting of all the smaller private moments that unfolded in people's jobs all across the country. Maine, Arizona, Michigan, New York City, specifically essential workers. We're going to hear the stories only they know, moments that changed the way people thought about their jobs, changed the choices they'll make next, and will affect the economy in ways we are only just beginning to see. That's today's show. Stay with us. Because today's show is a kind of audit, each act name will include a number. So our first number for our ledger here is the number three. This act is called Three Bottles of Joy. That'll make sense in a second. So here's a small thing you would have no way of knowing was happening underground during the pandemic. Station agents in New York City's subway system, the people who sit in booths and sell you tickets or give you directions, they were still going to work every day. But most of the public stopped riding the trains, so it got really quiet down there. And as the weeks went on, station agents began bringing items from home into their booths to sit with them during the day. Bibles, spiritual aphorisms. Little stuff like that, putting mirrors, look at you, smile. Monita Lewis, she's a station agent for the MTA, New York City Transit. She saw workers bringing in all sorts of things into their booths. You know, at one point, we was buying the bottles of joy. Sometimes we would have them sitting up. Joy. Joy like the dishwashing stuff? Yeah. So if you see the word joy, you look at it, it's going to make you smile. Monita says, we needed that. Made us feel less alone. Over time, the bottles of joy, they started to be a marker for Monita of how their work was changing. Monita's job is to be lunch relief for other station agents. That means she travels to a station, the agent on duty goes on lunch, and Monita sits in their booth for 30 minutes, then travels to the next station. So she sees the inside of a lot of booths. And Monita's an observer. Black woman, cat eyeglasses, she can talk to anyone, and she does. She goes from South Ferry Station to Rector to Chambers. She gets a bagel from the corner store at 10.30 a.m. 
She eats it for six minutes by the window as she narrates the traffic at the four-way intersection outside. With an eye on the unmarked cop car that is always parked there waiting, she says four or five tickets daily. And people cut the light, because you could cut the light four ways here. Every day. Then it's underground. Monita waves me into the subway through the gate. Come on, you're with the MTA lady. You're with me. You're with the MTA lady. March 2020, when the pandemic shut down New York City, Monita brought word of the virus from booth to booth. At one booth, the agent would say, do you think we should be wearing masks? And at the next booth, oh, I heard we're not supposed to. Management doesn't want us scaring the customers. Another booth. What customers? Monita says all the agents at every booth were talking about the disappearing customers. Absolutely. We was like, they get to stay home? We wanted them to close the station down, too. But as station agents, we had to be here on set. Yes. So it felt, we felt a little cheated. We felt like, you know, like, okay, what about us? Or what are y'all going to, you know, we're grateful to have a job. Don't get me wrong. You know, um, I've acquired quite a lot, a lot, even just meeting people and learning. But it was just like an uneasiness. It was like we was coming to work to get sick. You felt like you were coming to work to get sick? Yes. And they did. Transit workers began to get sick in large numbers. And they began to die in large numbers. First a subway conductor and a bus driver, then a track worker. The MTA suffered more COVID deaths than any other agency in New York City. 171 deaths. COVID was surging, and New York City was the epicenter. It was like a plague struck this one specific agency. A bus driver I spoke with told me, when you lose someone in the transit system, you notice because what transit is, is a time schedule. That train pulls out at 4.31 every day. That bus passes with the same bus driver at 8.22 every morning. That person buys chips from the same vending machine in the break room at exactly 5.12. When someone dies, their absence is immediately visible. Monita told me she felt like suddenly work was a battle and she was a soldier trying to stay alive. A lot of transit workers felt this way. But they are not soldiers. So I would ask people, how do you make that switch? How does a person go from driving a train every day to going into work thinking you might die doing this job? The week that COVID hit my line and my terminal, I was on vacation. Christopher Gonzalez drives the number seven train. He's a conductor. Suddenly, an essential conductor which he spoke about like he was being conscripted into an army just as the war was heating up. I just kept looking at my text messages and Facebook. Everybody at work was getting sick. And I said, wow. And I started getting worried when it was time to go back to work. I, I didn't want to go back. I was just thinking about it. I, was, I called my mom a lot. I told her, I said, Mom, guess what? The week I took off, everyone got sick. Yeah. And, you know, she, she was over here thanking the Lord. I was like, okay, Ma, I got it. Thank you. You know, appreciate it. But I still got to go to work tomorrow. You know, and she's giving me the whole thing. Please be careful. Wear your mask. Stay far away from everybody. I said, yes, I know. 
Um, and she's also getting on me for my vitamins. She said, the vitamins is going to help. Take the vitamins. And I said, yes, ma, I will. Chris said his mom told him, no, 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 do it now while we're on the phone. And then she waited until she could hear him taking his vitamins. And uh, I was worried. And I said, mom, I spoke to her, you know, just to tell her, you know, you're my beneficiary. If something happens, everything is set. I have life insurance. Don't worry about it, you know. So she was she was worried, and I just had to calm her down a bit. You you told her you're my beneficiary. That was your way of calming her down. Well, she tells it to me all the time when she flies on the airplanes. Yeah, <laughs> um, it, it was scary, but relieving. Uh, it was very relieving when I was talking to her because uh, she's my mother. I just had to man up and go in the next day, but I didn't want to. Monita told me it was around this time, when you'd hear about people dying daily, that station agents started bringing in the bottles of Joy dish soap into their booths. Transit workers were essential, but they were also alone. Station agents are supposed to be the eyes and ears of the subway system, but there were so few people. Transit took away cash purchases, fear of transmission, so subway fares were all taken on machines. Monita was by herself, sitting in the booths, looking at all the hopeful items people brought in, the bottles of joy, and just hanging on until we got to the other side. And now, here we are, kind of at the other side. Is there another side? Things have definitely changed underground. They're better. But Monita's job is not the same. The people have not returned. They're not riding the trains like before. And the cash hasn't returned either. Station agents still are not allowed to take cash purchases. Technically, we sit there. We're not supposed to be on our phones, not supposed to be reading anything outside of transit memos. We have no customers. So where is that? I think it's in England where the soldiers just sit there. They don't move. <laughs> like no at the, Like at the Queen's Palace? Yeah. Does it make you not want to do the job anymore? It makes me feel like I'm unable to fully do what I was hired to do. Say, say more about that. What do you mean by that? One of the biggest things coming down here was the busyness. You know, I like busy stations. The money, the camaraderie with the customers, they go in the world. I'm a people's person, and most of us work. You don't feel like a people person anymore? I do feel like a people person. I just feel like people don't care. And a lot of us feel that way. Especially because recently the MTA has proposed eliminating her position, the position of lunch relief for station agents. The union sued, and the MTA backed down. But looking forward, without cash purchases, the job of a station agent does seem much less essential. What if Monita survived the war, only to be laid off in peacetime? I asked her recently if the bottles of joy are still in the booths. She said, nah, people took them away. You're not allowed to bring extra stuff into the booth. You could get away with it before when we were left alone down there. Act two. 
Monita's job changed pretty dramatically in ways she did not like. But most jobs didn't actually change that much. In fact, one of the strangest aspects of working through the pandemic for a lot of people was how much did not change in their jobs. That is the case with this next story. So we're going to add another number to our list. If you picture our ledger here, we've got 415 coffins, three bottles of joy. I feel like the next number here should have like stars drawn around it or something. Sparkly pen aspirational stars, like a goals list. The number is 25. Act two is called the $25 tip. It took Shelly Ortiz a decade in the restaurant business to work up to a $25 tip. She started when she was 15 years old, got her first job as a cashier at a Five Guys in Phoenix. And Shelly walks in, bubbly, ready to go. Her nickname growing up was Smiley, and you can hear it in her voice. I remember I was at orientation, and I really wanted to make friends. And I remember like turning to a man and being like, so what high school do you go to? He like looked at me and he was like, I'm 35. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like a big realization that like I'm the youngest person here um, and it shows. (laughs) Shelly describes herself as an all in type person and she threw herself into restaurants all through college, her 20s. There was five guys, then a French bistro, a sandwich shop, a food court and eventually fine dining where she finally got her first $25 tip, which was huge. She was only making $9 an hour. Shelly picked up on the routines of each place she worked easily. She loves a routine. And she loved restaurants. Shelly got rude customers all the time. People who'd say things about her body, her personality, how much she was checking on the table. I remember I, I used to work brunches a lot. I was like the brunch girl. And brunch made good money. But brunch clientele, it's intimidating. And I remember we were running out of forks. We were running out of forks. And I I think about this all the time. I, I think I put some spoons on a table, a very picky, picky brunch table, because they were getting like something that they could potentially eat it with a spoon, but they probably should have actual roll-ups with a fork and a knife and a napkin. And I remember... I came back to collect them because we needed them and give them actual roll-ups. And a woman slapped my hand away and said, we need those. <laughs> and I was like, I'm giving you roll-ups, actual silverware. And she like looked at her friend. And she was like, <laughs> like this girl. And she like rolled her eyes and continued to talk to the woman. Um, and it was, it was just like a reminder that like, I am not a human to her. I have never been a person to her. I am just uh, someone out of her world that doesn't deserve to be treated like a human being. Shelly got it. This, too, was routine. It came along with the $25 tips. I mean, amongst the servers, no one would be shocked to hear that. It's very common. And it felt worth it to you. Yeah. I would just think that I got her money. I got paid. So she's just another person that I don't have to think about after this. And at the end of my shift, I'd be able to go home. I'd be able to hug my girlfriend. It became like a disassociation. Like, this is not me. This is just this person who is serving. And you're here to take home this money. Take home the money. She honed this skill to disassociate. She could shake off whatever was thrown at her. Shelly would collect the cash from the table and move on. 
the mayor of Phoenix declared a state of emergency on March 17, 2020. Shelley's restaurant closed briefly, but soon after, restaurants were declared essential services in Arizona and reopened for takeout and delivery. But Shelley hung back. Her dad was sick, recovering from a heart attack, and her mom is a nurse who was treating patients with COVID. Shelley was too scared. She told me she didn't want to apply for unemployment because she's Puerto Rican and she just had a sense that that kind of thing never happened for people like her. By May, restaurants in Arizona were serving people in person, and Shelley had to go back. She was still very nervous. I was double masking before it was even a thing. I bought fake glasses to protect my eyes. Um, I was like, I would only really take off my mask to drink water, and I would only drink water in the bathroom where I was alone. Like, that's the only time I would ever get it. And, that, you know, that was long shifts. I was really scared. Meanwhile, she still had her routines. She was doing all the things she'd done thousands of times before. Welcome the customer, explain the specials, carry the plates, deliver the drinks. And I was just kind of waiting for that shitty thing to happen. I would have people ask me, like, pull down your mask. I want to see how much to tip you. Um, pull down your mask. I want to see how much to tip you. Yes. They would want to see how pretty I was before they tipped me. (laughs) Was that a thing that happened frequently, that people would ask you to pull down your mask? Yeah, that happened probably about every week. Pull down your mask so I can make sure you're smiling. Pull down your mask so I, you know, or like, why, you know, why are we still wearing masks? Why do you have to wear a mask? Uh, You know, it was always about like either why am I wearing one or can I see your face? So I can know that you're smiling. So I can know you're smiling, so I can know if you're pretty, (laughs) Um, which is so stupid. (laughs) It's like, God, who gives a fuck if I'm pretty? (laughs) Can I just serve you your food? (laughs) I'm sure that wasn't the first time that you were, customers were assessing the way that you looked. Oh. But did it feel different to have it stated so baldly? Yeah, you know, I am, so I'm four foot nine. I'm very short. And I have... Very big breast for my frame. You know, it's unavoidable. I'm very small. I have big boobs. And usually, like, you know, I'm really cute. So, like, it's easy to have people, like, just understand that people are going to be checking me out. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have comments before, but I think when the pandemic hit, it was, um, it hit harder because I they wanted me to risk my safety so that they could see if I was cute. Something I heard from a lot of people I talked to about working through a pandemic, people in all sorts of jobs, they said they felt like they were in a movie. That one of the strangest parts was how much did not change. It was uncanny, the way good science fiction is uncanny. It looks like normal life, but something big is off. And the parts of the job that have not changed just make the parts that feel off stand out even more. I was serving a Saturday night, and it was a really busy shift. I was outside, and I was serving this couple, and they were really needy. But that wasn't very rare, especially at a restaurant like this, mm-hmm. where you know you're paying you're paying good money for food and drink. Um, but at the end of the shift, the gentleman—it was a gentleman and his wife, an older gentleman and his wife—and um, he asked me to to pull down my mask so he could see if the bottom part of my face was as cute as the top. And I said I couldn't. Um, and then when I said I couldn't, he said that 
because he couldn't focus on my face. He was forced to focus on my breast. Wow. And uh, his wife was sitting right across from him. And I looked at her for any sort of response, and she just kind of gave me a blank stare in return. He said it like, um, almost like matter-of-factly. He was like, well, if I can't look at your face, I'm forced to look at your breast. And it was like, and it was just, just, it was just disgusting. It just sucked. Like, which is like, great, awesome. Now I'm, I think mostly during the pandemic, my self-worth was so low. Um, I felt really disposable, um, obviously being objectified all the time because half my face was covered up. Um, and I tried to make it work, but I wasn't adjusting the way my coworkers were. And I felt really disposable. And I, I, I just felt like another person who was destined to get sick. And it would just be like another stat. Have you felt that way before? I've never felt that way before. It was like the pandemic and risking your life and not feeling the camaraderie with your teammates anymore because it really didn't feel like anyone was taking it as seriously as me. And then I started questioning if I'm this crazy person and I started questioning my anxiety and then my anxiety got worse and the anxiety and the anger got so high. But I felt like I was not adjusting the way my coworkers adjusted. I feel like people who had to work during the pandemic adopted this disassociation and I couldn't. Um, I couldn't separate it. Why couldn't she? Shelly spent so much time on this question. Why couldn't she disassociate? As she'd done for years, when a customer slapped her hand or yelled or talked about her body, her coworkers were going out to karaoke after work. Her customers were out with friends and family catching up. I remember one time a woman had a comment card and she like, she left it for me and it said, thanks for making things feel normal with like a smiley face. And I was like, livid. I was like, things are not normal. This is not normal. I'm risking my life to serve you a margarita and it's not normal. I don't want to contribute to this fantasy that a pandemic isn't happening right now. That's really interesting. So she was she was like trying to give you a compliment. Like, yeah, I know. You did a good job. I'm re- I understand that like, it was coming from a kind place, but thousands of people are dying right down the road at the hospital. And I'm here serving your margarita because I have to, because I have to live. And it, it was just like a, it's such an intense moment for me of like realization that like, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to create a fantasy that things aren't as bad as they are. And they are. What is essential about restaurants? Sure, they provide jobs, food, but so do grocery stores. This was a health crisis. Doctors, nurses, sure, essential. But what is essential about an Asian fusion place in downtown Phoenix? All these things we suddenly started calling essential services. This wasn't some long-held, agreed-upon category. We just made all this up very recently. And even then, it was pretty random. There was federal guidance on what services should be essential, but most states didn't follow the guidance. 
They either came up with their own lists of essential services, or they had no guidance. So if you had a liquor store in Pennsylvania, you were not essential. But in New Jersey, you were. Construction workers, that was a controversial one in a number of states, essential or not essential. And then there are the ones that have a particularly local flavor, like flower shops. They were essential in Delaware. And in Arizona, golf courses, essential. Also restaurants. So Shelley's restaurant was open, and millions of restaurant workers performed their normal daily routines through a pandemic. Why? What essential service did they provide? Was this it? Restaurants were essential because they helped make things feel normal? Once Shelley thought about her job this way, she was to continue doing all the things she'd always done. She was essential so that other people could feel normal. It was too much for her. The trade-off she'd been making in her head, $25 tips in exchange for some long hours, some crap from customers, that trade-off fell apart. She didn't want to be paid for the fantasy anymore. A few weeks later, a coworker was exposed to COVID, and Shelly walked out of the restaurant. Uh, and then I never went back. Oh, that was the end for you. Yeah, yeah. Shelly got unemployment, then picked up some film jobs, went back to school for film. She told me now she doesn't think she could ever go back to serving, even after the pandemic. Do you feel like the actual job changed, or do you think it's that you changed? Did the Like, has it become ugly, or was it always ugly? Yeah, I think that I changed more than the job changed. There's always been a certain amount of ugly that's been in the restaurant industry, especially, you know, sexual harassment has always been there. Verbal harassment mm-hmm. has always been there. But it was like I, like seeing it for the first time with new eyes. Um, I saw a lack of kindness and courtesy. And it was constant. Yeah. It's almost like people put on COVID goggles, you know, and and wearing the COVID goggles, like they started to see their job differently. Mm -hmm. I definitely saw my job differently with my COVID goggles, for sure. Um, That is what made it really ugly for me. Here's the image I have in my mind hearing Shelley talk about where she's at right now. I picture all the governors and mayors and council members sitting down to make their lists of essential services. Hospitals, grocery stores, restaurants, golf courses. And I picture Shelly doing the same. She's making her own list of all the things she considers essential. Her life, her health, her self-worth. And she's crossing off an item at the very bottom of her list. A $25 tip. Coming up, quitters and the people who love them. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. It's This American Life. I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt, sitting in for Ira Glass. This week's show, we are talking to essential workers about what happened inside their jobs over the last year and a half. Things nobody else knows. 
And we are marking these experiences down for posterity so that as we move into the bright and quickly darkening future, we will do so with a shared understanding of what we have just been through. So far, we have 415 coffins, three bottles of joy, and a $25 tip. We're going to be adding more to that list. And we will see what happens when people take stock one by one and wind up making some choices they never expected to make. That's what the second half of the show is about. Quitters and the people they quit on. A record number of people are quitting their jobs, and they are all quitting on Miss Jordan Rossignol. That's how it feels to her, anyway. Which brings us to our next act, teacher number four. Miss Jordan's Child Development Center in northern Maine has lost 23 teachers since the pandemic began. 23. Most years, Miss Jordan told me herself, maybe one or two teachers leave. So that's our next number for our ledger, 23. 23 disappearing teachers. Miss Jordan says the first teacher... She left right away, March 2020. She was scared of Jeremy kids. Then another went in April, a third in May. They left for other jobs. And then in June, Miss Jordan says, was teacher number four. Shania. Uh, Shania was hands down the best teacher we've ever had in this program, ever. I could talk for hours about Shania. Finding good teachers and then keeping them. This has always been a problem in early childhood education. It's one of those areas that was already a bruise, and the pandemic came and just stomped on it till the bone was broken, too. For Miss Jordan, teacher number four, Shania Bell, that felt like the break. She can't get over it. And she's not joking about how much time she can spend lamenting this particular loss. Shania's ideas were fresh, she tells me. Her discipline was fair. Her lesson plans were thought out. She was reliable. She was a fun coworker. I would, in meetings, when we have staff meetings, I would say, okay, your voice, I want you to have Shania voice, where they could be firm, but their voice was happy. In the morning, when you drop off your child, you want to hear, good morning, my friends. What kind of voice were people doing? Just like, oh, good morning, like, how are you doing? Let's go. Let's get in. Come on. Oh, I know you're crying. Let's go. Just short. We had some teachers in the past who were just short. Come on, you're a big kid. Let's go. None of that. Like, no. Good morning, my sweet girl. Good morning, friends. She did this calm down method because toddlers, toddlers get mad and they don't know why they're <laughs> mad all the time. And they're impulsive and they want to just bite or hit or run away. And she told them to blow up a balloon and they would put their hands over their head while taking a deep breath and they would hold it there like a balloon over their head and then they would slowly let the air out and they would just go and they would sit by themselves and she made a little balloon corner is what she called it. And they still do it. Still, I'll still say, even my own daughter, Monroe, Monroe, I need you to do three balloons, please. And she'll take her three deep breaths, and she'll release them, and they're calm. So, yeah, it's just, she has a gift. She has a gift. Just amazing. Amazing. Like, you can't teach it. See what I mean? When Miss Jordan conceived of her early childhood center in her hometown, babies to kindergarten, she could picture it in her mind, but she says it wasn't until Shania showed up a couple years ago and she got to see her in a real classroom. That's when Miss Jordan felt like, this is going to work. Shania told me for her, when she walked into Miss Jordan Center, 21 years old, she was nervous in a way she had not been before because she felt like, this is it. This is the job I actually care about and I don't want to mess it up. 
And she did love the job. But then... 2020 hit and COVID hit. And, you know, for a little while, a lot of our uh, kiddos weren't coming to school. And I was nervous. Like, are we going to have to close? You know, am I not going to be you know, getting paid for a little while. I don't know. There was just a lot of uncertainty. There was the time the owner, Miss Jordan, asked everyone to hold off on getting paid, and their paychecks came in late. And the time Shania was pretty sure her paycheck came from Miss Jordan's personal bank account. Shania began to feel like, wait, is there no cushion in this business? She'd never really thought about the business side of things before, but once she started to, she started to have some doubts. When a friend posted about a job at the local hardware store, Shania applied. Then she had to tell Miss Jordan. So she came in my office and shut the door, and I knew that was bad when she shut the door. (laughs) This is Miss Jordan again. (laughs) And um, she just started crying, and she was like, I was offered a job. That was the first time I ever cried when someone gave me their notice. I just lost it. You started crying? Yeah, instantly. Yeah, and she's, she was just crying. She's like, Jordan, I can't pay my bills. I can't afford to work here. This is obvious, but deserves saying anyway. So many of the people we call essential workers do not make a lot of money. They're overwhelmingly low-wage workers. About half the people in this country who make less than $15 an hour work in fields we now call essential. So you can be the very best at running the grill or cleaning the office building or managing rude customers at the restaurant. You can be the star teacher, teacher number four, Shania, and still only make an average of $11 or $12 an hour. And no health care. Miss Jordan barely makes enough from tuition to cover her expenses. But she's reluctant to raise rates on families because she knows many parents can't afford to pay. And she knows from experience that if she goes too high... Families are going to pull their kids all together. When Shania talked to Miss Jordan, and when she talked to me about leaving her job, she could not bring herself to say the word quit. She told Miss Jordan, I have to get done. I knew that she was going to try, like, you know, everything to to pay me more. Um, But I knew that everything she was, you know, trying to do possibly wasn't going to work out in the end just because she couldn't she really couldn't afford to do that um Mm. and And you knew that yeah and I knew that and I and I understood Miss Jordan did do all those things she pleaded we'll figure something out just give me more time and she tried a technique that I think is maybe only applicable in a small town when Shania said where she was going Miss Jordan shook her head I was. I said, you're going to hate it. <laughs> you told her I that? Said, yeah. I was like, I love you, and, and I want you to be happy, but you're going to hate it. <laughs> and I know the boss and the owner of it, and I said, he won't love you the way I love you. I'll tell you that. <laughs> she's like, I know, I know. And I, I also thought, like, she's going to hate that. She's going to come back. So Shania left, and Miss Jordan waited for her to return. In the early childcare world, there were two somewhat distinct phases of the pandemic. There was the beginning, in which childcare centers lost money, even as their work became labeled essential. And then there's this moment now, 
where what was already a chronic problem of teacher turnover has become so much worse because the industry can't compete. Places like Walmart, Home Depot, FedEx, grocery store chains like Kroger kept making money over the pandemic. Amazon made record profits. Childcare centers did not. So teachers are leaving for jobs at Amazon or Dunkin' Donuts or grocery stores that can pay them more and sometimes give them health benefits. A woman in Ohio who owns a childcare center told me, even the amusement parks can pay better than we can right now. When Ms. Jordan lost Shania, teacher number four of 23, she allowed a thought that has been sitting uncomfortably to the forefront ever since. What if I can never keep someone like Shania? What if no one ever believes this is valuable? I feel like I'm constantly trying to prove myself that what I'm doing is, is important. I have a college degree in education. People don't know. People don't know what we do. Like, how could it cost so much? Aren't you guys just, like, coloring and eating goldfish all day with them? Like, no. <laughs> no. I make lesson plans for every single classroom, infant up to the school age program. There's so many regulations that we have to follow. Um, there's a schedule. There's a meal plan. There's trainings that my staff have to do. We run this like a school. The only difference is that there's no public funding for us. Why is it that essential workers happen to be some of the lowest paid workers in the country? How could a job that is so valuable be paid so little? There are some standard explanations you will hear. Many essential jobs do not require extra credentials or a lot of education. There's a lot of available labor to do these jobs. In other words, they are low-paid because they are, quote, low-skilled jobs. But also, one thing that unites this broad category of low-paid essential jobs, and almost everyone you've heard from in this show, is not the kind of work they're doing, but who is doing it. Black people, Latino people, immigrants, women, and all the people who cover more than one of those categories. 95% of childcare workers are women. White women, like Shania, Miss Jordan, and many women of color. Almost half of childcare workers are people of color. The field is much more racially and linguistically diverse than K-12 teachers, and the people in it make much less money. The pandemic gave childcare an official stamp of essentialness in this singular moment in history when it is more clear than it has ever been and may ever be again that schools and childcare are essential to the functioning of literally everything. But Ms. Jordan's work and the people doing that work may never be valued enough for her to secure more funding or for her to get Shania back. Ms. Jordan and Shania live in a town of 8,000 people. So when Shania left, she went all the way to a job across the street. She parks in the same spot she did when she worked at Ms. Jordan's. Ms. Jordan told me, I see her all the time. She came by like every day after work, her first week over there. And she was like, well, it's not the same. It's definitely not the same. She's like, I didn't think I was going to have to work Saturdays and have to work every Saturday all summer. And I said, weird, your old boss never made you work a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jordan. <laughs> so, yeah, so we kind of like, we tease each other about that and stuff. Um, 
And then, like, she'll, she'll, she's come to have lunch with me a couple times during her lunch break. The other day I was working on a project, and I um, needed paint. I went over there. She was working behind the paint counter. She mixed my paint for me. And, you know, as I watched her, like, mix paint, I was like, I can't believe this is what you're doing. Like, you are so talented and so gifted. And not, not that, you know, mixing paint isn't important, but, like, that's what you're doing? She has a gift that you can't teach. It just kills me to watch her do something that is not what her gift is and her passion. One thing economists will say about economic moments like this, when a lot of people are quitting their jobs, they'll say, it's a good thing. High quits numbers equals optimism. People are going back to school. They're going for that dream job. People feel secure enough to look around a little for what they really want to do. This is obviously not an example of that. This is an example of a market that does not work. This is an example of a talented person who's drawn to a job that is essential, that she's not doing because it does not pay enough. There are people who are quitting who are happy about it. There are people who are mad, confused about what they want. Of course, there's the whole range. One thing I found interesting is that for many people, there was often one moment that set things in motion for them a while back. Some symbol of something just being off in their job. And then it's like these symbols just sat next to them for months, kind of haunting them until they could not deal anymore they found themselves doing something they never planned to do. Sometimes that was quitting, but there were some other approaches as well. So for our last story, I want to tell you about some of those symbols and then what happened next. Our last number, it's also our biggest number in the whole show, 12 million. Act four, 12 million thank you meals. This one I heard about from a guy in Flint, Michigan. My name is Flato Alexander, F-L-A-T-O. Flato is 61 years old. He's a black man, wakes up every morning at 4 a.m., walks to work, McDonald's, opens the store, cooks sausage, eggs, pancakes. He's in the back on his own, sometimes for many hours. He doesn't mind. He enjoys working alone. When he's at home, Flato will spend a lot of time helping out neighbors, removing snow, cutting grass. He enjoys that too, although... He did mention he's a person who sometimes has a hard time saying no. When I asked Flato what the pandemic was like for him, that's when he started telling me about how last spring, McDonald's began offering free food, Egg McMuffins. At first, I think the commercial. And I'm like, wow, they're going to give away an Egg Muffin to meal to essential workers, you know. These are the most important meals we've ever served. Through May 5th, We'll be feeding first responders and healthcare workers thank you meals for free. Remember this? I realized watching a bunch of these commercials, I'd somehow forgotten how completely everyone threw themselves in to breathlessly praising essential workers. Two words most of us had never heard used together before. All of a sudden, they were everywhere. It's like we invented this category of worker to thank them. Fifth, we'll be proudly feeding you thank you meals for free. It's our honor to serve you. 
Anyway, Fleto saw that commercial and was like, oh, that'll be me serving you. And I'm like, oh, Lord, we finna get ready to be busy. You know, that's my first thought, because, you know, and, and, and the workers came, people from hospitals, nurses, you know, they came and got the food. Now, I thought Flato was sharing this as a moment of pride, being part of this. But no, this moment, handing out free thank you meals, it was the start of something for him. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't like it. I didn't understand it. Because we here working, and you want us to make some food and give it to somebody. We couldn't go nowhere and get nothing free. You weren't getting the free food that was for the essential workers? Yeah, that's for the essential workers. Weren't you guys essential workers? Yeah. So why you don't come up with something for us to have? McDonald's gave away 12 million thank you meals to frontline workers. After two weeks, they stopped. But not without putting out one more commercial. It was an honor to meet you. An honor to thank you. And it was our honor to serve you. Business went back to normal, but Flato kept returning to the experience in his mind. How much did that cost? All of a sudden, they have so much money for that? They was giving it, giving free food away. If you got the audacity to waste millions of dollars on giving somebody some food, take some of that money and, and make a difference with one of us. You're making a difference with other people, but you're still ignoring your workers. So I didn't understand it. This, that's... I guess that was part of one of their shareholders meeting to come up with that idea. Fleto talked a lot about the shareholders, for McDonald's, the big corporation, and also about the franchise owner, the people who own his McDonald's, and about a dozen or so other stores. He says he barely saw them during the pandemic. The higher-ups, they rarely came to the store. He'd always noticed it, but handing out the thank you meals for healthcare workers, he noticed it more. You scratching your head like, wow, you know, no appreciation gets shown towards us. Show some type of appreciation towards the ones that's doing some work. That's what I mean. It's not no jealous thing. It's, it's common sense. It's like a show of unconcern. The, the feeling that you're describing, did that start in the last year for you? Yeah. Yeah. To be honest with you, you are you are 1000 percent right. It sure has. Come to the company and say, good job. You guys are a good, is doing a good job. I ain't heard that this year. Thank y'all for coming to work during this time. What would it have meant to you if you had? It would have meant a lot. It would have been a very touching thing for somebody to, to, to let you know that they have the slightest respect for your life and your livelihood. Because not showing a sense of unconcern to people, it's not a good feeling. It's like having a relative that won't speak to you. It makes you sad. I thought that was such a fitting way to describe something I'd heard from a lot of people who worked through the pandemic. A feeling that while they had no choice to come to work, the people who were making all the choices, if they had to work, how much, how much they'd get paid, how safe they'd be, those people appeared completely indifferent, callous even, like a relative who won't speak to you. A server at a pizza restaurant in Texas, Ashley Baker, told me the owner used to come in all the time, and then he vanished. 
he did. He literally stopped coming to the restaurant. He literally just went AWOL. As soon as like there was news saying that COVID was in El Paso, he literally disappeared. When he showed back up months later, they were all relieved to have someone in charge to answer their questions. But I do remember one thing that really struck uh, a nerve with me was that he changed his vehicle to like a Corvette. And I remember like that kind of struck a nerve in me because I'm like, wow, you're paying us minimum wage and you want people to come in on time and stuff. Um, But you're over here. You have the luxury of not coming in. And you have the ability to go change your, to get get a brand new car. That was the moment where I was like, where things just set in. For Flato, it was the 12 million thank you meals. That was the symbol for him. Now glowing neon. It put all the other parts of his job in a less acceptable light. For Ashley, it was the Corvette. For employees at a McDonald's in California, Perhaps it was when they raised concerns about the lack of PPE, and they say their bosses told them to use coffee filters and doggy diapers for masks. For a guy I met outside an Amazon warehouse, it was when he says he was fired four times for having COVID. Four times. This was a thing, apparently, at Amazon. People would tell their bosses they had COVID or they got exposed to COVID, and then they'd get fired. Later, they would hear it was an HR mistake and they were welcome to appeal, get their job back, but not always the weeks or sometimes months of lost wages. And for Ashley's manager at the pizza place, a woman named Solaris Morales, the Corvette pissed her off. But the real sign for her was when the restaurant cut back her hours and she became eligible for unemployment. I was like, how can I making more on unemployment than my actual job. I mean, how, yeah, I mean, how can it be possible that they gave us all that unemployment and we're still making, like, what's the minimum wage in Texas? Seven twenty-five. Like, how? And what lesson did you take from that? That your boss never cares for you. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. These things just sat nearby as they did their jobs, nagging. A Corvette, being fired four times, $7.25 an hour. Flato at McDonald's, he was handing out those thank you meals more than a year ago. He's still mad about it. He's mad about a lot of things. That they never got hazard pay, sick pay, paid time off, health care. The owner-operator of Flato's McDonald's says he showed his appreciation by raising wages during the pandemic. But Flato's wage is another thing that just makes him angry. He went from $11 to $12 an hour. He wants more. But the one thing Flato talked about more than any other was the fact that the franchise owner and the people who work with him did not come by. Or when they did, they did not appear to actually see them. No appreciation gets shown towards us. They know our name when they come in the building. See, like, they show no concern. It's interesting because I feel like appreciating essential workers is the one thing that we did do. Like, most places didn't pay hazard pay or higher wages or health care, but, like, there was so much. Thank you, essential workers. We appreciate you and clapping for you and commercials. 
But none of that felt like anything to you? Uh, no. Not really. My mother always said when you come into somebody's home, you're supposed to say, hey, how you doing? You're supposed to speak. Yeah. You didn't want an ad. You wanted your actual human boss to come and say thank you. Yeah, get everybody together in the lobby and, and, and tell us how you feel. That would be fine. That would be fine. That would be excellent for me. It would make me happy as hell. Ashley and Solaris at the pizza restaurant, they quit. The guy I met at the Amazon warehouse, he was being pitched on a union. A group of current and former employees are now trying to organize one at the Staten Island warehouse. And Flato did something he has never done his entire working career. Recently, when his coworkers started talking about striking, he joined. It felt like not him. Yeah, it, it, it was new for me. It was very new. And there were so many people out. It was just... <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was really nice. I mean, people was everywhere. Did you hold a sign? No, I didn't get a chance to. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's just sad that we have to stand outside, and, you know, and yell and scream and say, yeah, we want this, we want that, when you should be sitting down trying to come up with a plan for this to happen for us. Did you ever expect that you would make it to 61 years old and, and suddenly become a guy who goes to strikes? Well, you know, you only can slap a person so many times. And you only can do a person wrong so many times. Imagine you got all these jobs paying $19, $20 an hour. And some of them is giving you a $300 signing bonus. And like an idiot, I still sit here and walk to the Golden Arch. Flato doesn't want to quit. The McDonald's is close to his house. He has no transportation. He can walk to work. He likes the people he works with. Some of them he's worked with for many years. And he likes the work. He doesn't want to change. He wants the job to change. He wants it to be less thankless. So many of the industries we deemed essential now seem to be in some sort of chaos. Restaurants are open now, but not for dinner because there's not enough staff. Healthcare workers are quitting their jobs. Election officials are bailing. And school superintendents from America's three largest school systems have all quit. And things that never really worked that great before seem to be truly breaking down. I called JetBlue the other day to change a reservation, and the recording said, the current wait time is 299 minutes. Some food chains are actually raising wages. Chipotle, Olive Garden, McDonald's is raising wages at its corporate stores. It's a small share of actual McDonald's stores, but still. Support for labor unions is the highest it's been in years. Every week or so lately, I see a picture online posted outside a store or restaurant announcing that no one works there anymore. Like this one, scotch tape to the door that reads, Attention Chipotle customers. We're overworked, understaffed, and underappreciated. Almost the entire staff and management have walked out of here until further notice. Or another, we are closed indefinitely because Dollar General doesn't pay a living wage or treat their employees with respect. 
I've never seen anything like it. Each sign, it seems like a whole group of employees just spontaneously and collectively decided they were done. But you know something happened at some point before now. Some shift started with, say, a Corvette or with 12 million thank you meals. One sign posted on a McDonald's drive through menu reads, We are short-staffed. Please be patient with the staff that did show up. No one wants to work anymore. Or another, also from a different McDonald's, with a different perspective. It reads, We are closed because I am quitting and I hate this job. People quit jobs for all sorts of reasons, and there are a lot of people debating why so many are doing it right now. So I'd like to just make sure this one possibility is on the table alongside all the others. That a good number of people worked through a life-threatening pandemic feeling unseen by the very people who were supposed to care for them. Feeling, as Flato did, like they have a relative who will not speak to them. My favorite sign is from a Wendy's in North Carolina. It reads, We all quit. Closed. In capital letters. And then in the corner of the sign, someone scrawled, Bye, Alyssa, with a smiley face next to it. Produced by Bim Adewunmi and edited by our executive editor, Emmanuel Berry. The people who put our show together today include Susan Burton, Aviva de Kornfeld, Tobin Lowe, Miki Meek, Lena Matsitsis, Stowe Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Alyssa Ship, Laura Starcheski, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Swatala, Matt Tierney, Nancy Updike, Chloe Weiner, and Diane Wu. Our managing editor is Sarah Abdurrahman. Senior editor, David Kastenbaum. Special thanks today to Rachel Lissy, Jennifer Klein, Diana Ramirez at One Fair Wage, Kate Wells, Zoe Clark, Leah Austin and Penelope Whitney, Derek Hamilton, Robert Williams, Anne Helen Peterson, Zoe Samudzi, Gina Jin, Tanya Breslow, Betsy Stevenson, and all the other people who spoke to me about their essential jobs. And also thanks to the excellent reporters who have focused on them in their stories, especially Eliza Shapiro, Heather Long, and Annie Lowry. Our website, thisamericanlife.org, where you can stream our archive of over 700 episodes for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks to my boss, Ira Glass. He has this special way of testing a microphone. Always the same for the last 25 years doing the show. We'll be back next week with more stories of This American Life. 